A mantis is a wonderful pet, easily the equivalent of a hamster, truthfully. Not all animals have fur, but vets can still treat them. Ever wondered what to do with a sick spider or a sluggish snail? My name is Benjamin Kennedy. Uh, I am an invertebrate vet. I'm primarily an exotic vet, and I obviously do uh, cats and dogs, but I also do insects, arachnids, and other invertebrates. Are you a veterinarian dreaming about working down under in New Zealand? If so, I'd love to help you make that dream come true. Hi, I'm Julie South of VetStaff. VetStaff is New Zealand's only recruitment agency specialising in the Kiwi veterinary sector. We can help you find your dream job down under, from short-term locum assignments through to permanent employment and residency. Because we know God's own Aotearoa New Zealand like the back of our hands, we can match your career aspirations with a clinic that'll suit you best. Whether you're planning to work here for a few months or forever, if it's got anything to do with working in a vet clinic in New Zealand, we can help. Vetstaff.co.nz You are listening to The Vet Podcast, presented by veterinarian Dr Brian Greger from New Zealand. Join us as we discuss pet health issues from around the world. So can we start right at the start then, Benjamin, as far as what is an invertebrate? So invertebrate, the word essentially means no spine. So we're described as vertebrates because we have spines. It's a very large catch-all term in some respects for a lot of species. So uh, invertebrates are arguably more than 98% of all species. H.S. Halfane, a, a pretty famous biologist, said that God isn't ordinately fond of beetles, and you can't really blame him. In fact, if you were to take all of the species of fish, birds, mammals, reptiles, amphibians, and plump them all together and then times them by seven, you still would have more beetles. So... In some respects, it's very difficult to say what an invertebrate is definitively because we're talking about something that's going from coral to spider to mantis to bumblebee to snail and lobster and shrimp. It, it's it, it's really a huge species variation, species set, and one invertebrate would be as different from another as far more than, say, a fish from a, a mammalian. Let's just narrow it down a little bit more then, Benjamin. What invertebrates do you deal with? I pretty much exclusively deal with terrestrial invertebrates, i.e. invertebrates that are normally on the land, as it were. And of those, I tend to deal with arachnids and insects and snails the most. So arachnids or arachnida don't just cover spiders, they also cover scorpions and tarantulas uh, as well. So a lot of people think of a tarantula as a spider, and it is, uh, but actually a, a true spider is a different species set from a ferrophosis spider, which, which is what a tarantula is. Of the insects, I do primarily mantids, which is mantises, which are a common pet, as well as beetles and do occasionally do bits of bumblebee work. And of course, feeders, all of our crickets, all of our locusts, all of our exotic pets 
are invertebrates. I don't tend to do as many aquatic invertebrates, of which there is actually a lot of established veterinary science. So shrimp, for instance, have quite a lot of established veterinary science because they are farmed. I also don't do as much coral, but I have done a bit of coral. So again, this is sort of a hidden part of keeping of animals that actually a lot of people with aquatic animals, so say fish, for instance, will often keep, especially if keeping saltwater fish, will often keep coral in there as well. So it's actually a bonus animal and they occasionally get disease as well. So it's trying to squeeze it down as much as I possibly can. Do invertebrates make good pets? I think they do. As a vet, I often feel conflicted. If someone comes to me and they say, Benjamin, I have two hours in the day. You know, Most of that time I spend sleeping because I work the rest of it. I, I live in an apartment. I don't live in, in a beautiful countryside and surrounded by land. You know, I, I think I sometimes struggle to even recommend a cat or dog. I think a lot of traditional, conventional pets require a lot of time. And they should. I think a tarantula or, or a mantis, I mean, a tarantula often only needs to be fed every week, perhaps every month. It requires a substrate change, perhaps once a year or two. They often take care of themselves. They obviously require a good setup. But actually, a lot of invertebrates are quite low maintenance and quite compatible with how people live their modern lives. Now, obviously, there are some invertebrates where you get a lot more from them. A mantis, for instance, is a wonderful pet, easily the equivalent of a hamster, truthfully. So I think mantises make fantastic pets because they are quite responsive to you. So they definitely have a personality, at least as far as I interpret them. Uh, Obviously, we can all discuss about how much we anthropomorphize any animal, let alone an invertebrate. So, and, and again, if you have a child... A colony of stick insects feels a lot more ethical and a lot less complicated than a rabbit or a guinea pig or even a dog or cat. If you imagine you buy a a dog for Christmas for your child and it actually it's, it's a situation that pretty much always goes wrong in some respect. Actually, stick insects, giant African land snails, they make much better pets for that sort of situation because they're much more tolerable they're much more hardy and they're not as you know hurtable in a way the situation isn't as unethical potentially as say buying a eight-week-old puppy and then passing it to your child and expect your child to do the care uh something like a, a stick insect or a land snail will actually be more than more than careable by a child potentially obviously with adult supervision You used one of my most favourite words in the world there before, Benjamin, of anthropomorphism. It's one of those words that just runs off your tongue. Um, This is very much going to be a generalised answer, but what kind of special conditions are required for keeping invertebrates as as pets? And I know we're talking about a number of different species here, but then I would be imagining they're not the kind of pet that you can put a blanket down in the corner and say, sit, stay there and I'll feed you in the morning. You're going to have to think about what you're doing before you get one. So broadly, broadly, broadly speaking, obviously with exceptions, I think an enclosure and species depending because you do kind of want somewhere for the animal to be based, even if you're handling it regularly. Most invertebrates don't need regular handling, and tarantulas, I think we could have a discussion about to what extent they appreciate handling. 
I think a good substrate which is appropriate for the species and environment within that enclosure, including temperature, UV, etc., full of species and a good, well-sourced diet. Even for something that is insectivorous, it is a good idea if something eats insects to give it a, a, a variation of well-kept insects. And if something that's herbivorous to give it a, a well-researched, well-sourced, effort, you know, organically sourced, ideally, so there's no insecticides diet. So temperature is the other one where it has to be at a temperature appropriate for that species and that temperature is monitored. But actually, you know, they don't really need exercise in the same way that a dog does. They don't need quite the same interaction or ways, again, species depending, that a a dog or cat might require. They can very much be quite independent and self-sufficient, provided you are feeding them regularly with line with what the species requires. They're not difficult pets in truth speaking as a vet that that is incredibly busy and has a dog and has three tarantulas the three tarantulas are much much easier to look after than the dog it's just crossed my mind and this is me speaking from new zealand where invertebrate pets are not the norm at all i mean i was a clinician for coming up to 40 years and i don't think i ever that i can think of treated an invertebrate where do you get them from? Do, do in, in the UK where you're based, do people go to a pet shop and buy an invertebrate or, you know, a, a man in the, in the back of the hotel with, the, you know, a box of tarantulas in his boot or? So variations for all of the situations in truth. In England, in the UK, which is a little bit more wild, wild west, dare I say it, than Australia and, and New Zealand, uh, they're very available. They're, there are invertebrate shows. And it's a common thing where vets will tell me they've never seen them before. But I think it's probably more because vets are not interacting with the owners, certainly in the UK. Recently did a study of tarantula owners, and we had over a thousand responses worldwide, of which you know, around six, seven hundred were from the UK. I've been to exhibitions that, that are big events. They are large events, seeing more than 3,000 people coming through so there are more owners than we give them give ourselves credit for but essentially you get them from a pet shop a invertebrate or exotic pet show which i suspect could be a whole other conversation or indeed online or through a man in the back of a van sort of situation (laughs) selling tarantulas i've certainly come across that before here in new zealand and i (laughs) think actually fortunately here in new zealand as far as I know, we can't keep things like tarantulas as pets. Now, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but um, taking it that you are in an area where you can keep some of these invertebrates as pets, both for the owners and for the vets, how do you know if they're actually sick? To quote the great Mary Branker, who is a one of the first female presidents of the BVA, she founded the Veterinary Invertebrate Society I mean, she would be asked this question and her response would be, how would you know your wife is sick? To which her response is, you would look at her and you know, because you should know your wife. And I think the same thing is true. I think invertebrates that are sick look sick. I think they express being sick in quite different ways sometimes. So spiders, for instance, are partially hydraulic. 
you know, they, they, they don't have muscles and tendons. They have essentially midgut diverticular going down their legs and vessels, which maintain a pressure. So if they're sick and they are dehydrated, they don't look, they don't have a, a skin tent or anything like that. They, they move differently. Uh, they begin to behave differently. Uh, I've got this fantastic slide of a scorpion with DQS and a normal scorpion. And, you know, you know the one with DQS is sick. It, it's one of my teaching slides. It's the same as getting a, a dog that's nice and bright and a dog that's under the weather. You can tell just by looking that the dog's under the weather. You're looking at it and you're going, the dog's not right, is it? So it's the same is true for invertebrates. I think as you know the your animal, you, you begin to know when it's not well, when it's not doing what it normally would do. The Vet Podcast has no sponsorship, but as is the way of the world, it still costs money to produce, what with the hosting site, interviewing platforms and software subscriptions. Not to mention the recording equipment required. So if you enjoy the podcasts, why not show it in a small way and buy me a coffee? If you are so inclined, go to buymeacoffee.com slash vetpodcasts or to our social media buyer site. Now back to the podcast. I'm not going to get into too much detail here about the the actual diseases that um, invertebrates can get, but as a general rule, I mean, you've got humans, dogs, cats, you know, you've got kidney disease, heart disease, you know, there, there are certain diseases which are the ones that are really common. Are there similar kind of conditions that you're looking for with invertebrates? Yes, I would say so. Uh, pretty much in truth, I think our knowledge of these disease profiles are not as advanced in invertebrates, but I, I think it is true that there probably are variations of the same things. We just don't know they're there yet. Uh, the, you know, the majority of the problems we see tend to be molting problems or inappetence uh, because those are the problems we see and understand the most of. So it's also one of the things that an invertebrate or most invertebrates will have quite uniquely to them, for the most part, obviously species depending. You know, a tarantula molts their entire skin. Even reptiles don't do something to quite the same extent that tarantulas do. Tarantulas actually even molt their book lungs, which is their equivalent of lungs, and their oral cavity. So when you know, when that process has an issue, that's when veterinary care is more needed. They have parasites, they have worms, they can get trauma the same. They can get dehydration the same. They can not be fed the right diet. It's all, do you know what? It's, there's more variations of, of the same than there are variations of differences if you put your mind to it. So I think all of the conditions that you could imagine a lot of vertebrates have, invertebrates have. They're, they're animals at the end of the day. Let's just have a look then at, at zoonoses. That, that's diseases which animals can give to humans. Now, I'm thinking of things like, I suppose, ticks giving Lyme disease, mosquitoes with malaria. Are there diseases that humans can catch off invertebrates? Yeah, there are. I mean, technically speaking, when you think about it, snails and slugs are one of the vectors of a fluke and lungworm which are so caught by vertebrates, not so much humans, but dogs and cats, nematodes and worms. Can, there have been reported cases of 
zoonoses being spread. Um, you've got to remember also that invertebrates have a, a microflora just in the same way that we do. They have bacteria on their skin. That bacteria can be very compatible with our skin at times. So I've certainly grown a lot of Ceratia marcesans and Pseudomonas species, which are their environmental bacteria, but they're, they're present on many invertebrates. So there are things you can catch from them. Probably not as much so as cats or dogs in some respects, because they are so different. So a lot of parasites or diseases that are specific to invertebrates are very specific to invertebrates. There are some diseases that aren't or that use invertebrates as a vector host, but it's kind of a little bit different. But I think Again, the same principles apply that would apply to any animal. You know, you want to have good biosecurity and good hygiene when you're handling them. So whenever I do a handling session with stick insects, people are either wearing gloves or they're washing hands before or after, if only to protect my poor little stick insects from catching something from the nasty humans. So it, it, it works both ways, of course. So you, should, you shouldn't kiss your snail, I take it? Uh, you shouldn't, but people do. People definitely kiss their snails, it must be said. I'm going to put my veterinarian hat on now without getting into too much detail. So I'm a vet in my consult room. Somebody brings in their sick tarantula. What the hell do I do? I mean, with, with, with a cat or a dog, you're, you're taking its heart rate, looking at the mucous membrane colour, taking its temperature. What are you actually specifically looking for in recording on your notes and giving you the, the flags as to what's wrong with this beast? See, I, I would argue you do nothing different <laughs> within reason. Uh, I know that sounds silly. You have your spider come into the consult room. It's in an enclosure. I tend to recommend you double enclose them and cover them with something to stop another client from having a nervous breakdown in the waiting room. I think you you take a history you do a clinical exam and you make a plan as much as you would a cat or dog. I think you can't do the same thing. So the main modifications I have is I tend to do a quite robust distance exam. I tend to get a spider or whatever it is into a smaller container so I can get a good close look at what's going on and where appropriate and probably more often than not. Bear in mind that I have done clinical exams on things that are smaller than my little fingernail uh trying to do trying to grab a stethoscope and get a heart rate or trying to do a traditional conventional exam that would be appropriate for a dog or cat doesn't work so i i tend to do an anesthesia and i tend to get a microscope out because they're that small so if i'm trying to find clinical lesions i need to get the tools which enable me to do it but to sort of throw it back at you you know if you're Imagine someone was to take a, a, a large cow and put them into your consulting room. You're not going to approach it in the same way you would. You'd probably look at the owner in horror. You're not going to de- treat that cow in the same way that you are a, a cat or dog. So it, it really is the same process. You are, you are looking to get clinical information that you can use based on the history that the owner has given you to determine what's clinically happening and then to make a plan which allows you to make a clinical intervention or not, if that makes sense. It's, it, I think sometimes vets say exactly what you have said to me. I have no idea. 
And the truth is they're lying to themselves. Of course they know what to do. You know, you just do the same thing. You just accept that you're going to have to grab a textbook. You're going to have to have some lateral thinking. You're going to have to maybe call a Benjamin and ask him very nicely for some direction. But actually, it's not too dissimilar in truth. Now, it's actually interesting that you say that, Benjamin, because for our regular listeners, you'll remember that a month or two ago, I had a talk to Juan, who is a bee vet, and I asked him the same question as to how do you examine a bee? And the the answer came back exactly the same as treat a beehive, uh, the hive, not just the bee, treat the beehive yeah. as a cow. You know, you've got, you've got the clinical abilities to do that sort of stuff. Can, can you, I'm thinking of sort of, Go, going further with your examination, is it possible to use the same ancillary testing that we're using with cows, dogs, horses, sheep, blood blood tests, X-rays, ultrasound? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, more than capable. They're, they're regular things I use. Uh, again, key differences: invertebrates don't have blood in the same way we do. They have hemolymph. Where, where the oxygen carrying capacity is in protein. But yeah, you can take blood, you can put, make a slide, you can do biochemistry. Again, the problem with the biochemistry is with the exception of Benjamin, you know, a lot of the reference intervals are not available because they're not there. So we're, we're, re- we're on the sides of what's available. But I've developed reference intervals for biochemistry, for tarantulas, for Gramostola, Rosea, uh, Chilean rose tarantulas involving 42 animals the amphibian vets are looking at me with positive glee going how you know, this is w- way too many and this wonderful number of animals x-rays are in some respects less helpful uh, because they have chitinous shells essentially but they c- I've found them very useful in the past for determining granulomas within the epistostrum, within the abdomen, and, and determining if there's a particular problem or a molting issue. I've used ultrasound as well to sort of look internally and to evaluate heartbeat. And my, one of my key tools is a Doppler to listen to the heart. So again, it's an animal. You know, these tools are designed to measure things uh, within animals. You know, it's just a matter of manipulating the situation so you can use the tool and actually, probably the most challenging thing is interpreting the information you get out of it. So if, if you were to take a um, blood sample, a hemolymph sample from your patient, who would be able to actually analyse it? Like, can the commercial laboratories with, with their dirty grade Hitachi analysers do it? Can you put it through an IDEX machine? Do you just have to... Use a dipstick. How are you doing it? Uh, I've used all of these. Uh, in truth, when I when I do a spider sample, I will send it to a, a local or lab to me called Pinmore Animal Laboratory Services. I know I've named dropped. I'm so sorry, and they have got enough experience to deal with those samples. Again, I have used in-house machines they can be compatible with some of these samples. You know, the company will will get slightly upset at the prospect, but it's certainly doable. It's a matter of modifying the machines or modifying the software. You can certainly do a cytology blood smear. That will tend to be one of my first things I will do. It can be done with a drop of hemolymph. You've got to bear in mind that these animals are often less than 10 grams. They will tolerate more fluid loss than most, in truth. 
certainly based on the studies I've done in the past, but you can't take a mill of blood from a spider. It will be a little bit dusty at the end of it. So it's all dependent on how much you can get. But it's essentially equivalent. I think if you have a sample that you want analysed, contact your local laboratory and ask them. I think probably the biggest issue will be what they charge because I think a lab like PALS can justify a full price because they know vaguely what they're doing and they can interpret. I think a large lab that just does cats and dogs and does nothing else, you know, I think if they they want to run it, that's fantastic. Again, they have to be sure they can interpret it and they have to be sure they have pathologists that are willing to make an interpretation because in cats and dogs, it's very easy to almost make a formulaic interpretation based on millions of studies. And actually with investments, you just have to give an opinion and accept it's an opinion. You need someone who's willing to do that process for you. In truth, most of it's me. I do my own histology. I do my own cytology. Uh, you know, The only thing I don't really tend to do is culture and sensitivity and biochemistry, which I get someone else to do for me. Let's go another step down this diagnostic path then, Benjamin, where the creature has come across your consult table or cage or jar or whatever you're doing, and you have got your diagnosis and you think we need to do surgery for whatever you do. That's, I guess, the first question. Can you do surgery on them? Yes and no. I think you can do more external things. You can certainly sample things. I think internal surgery is challenging and something I'm still figuring out the logistics of how you do it more effectively. Because again, this is one of the things where they are quite different from you or me. We are floating body sacks with free, free floating organs flopping about in our abdomen. We can open up our abdomen and look at those organs and manipulate them. And invertebrate is different. I think most invertebrates are quite, they're quite discreet. You know, a spider, for instance, has the same organs, but they're all connected to each other with connective stuff in the form of something called midgut diverticular. So their guts permeate around all of their organs. So trying to do a surgery is actually a lot more damaging. Because if you were to imagine that all of your guts were clivelled around all of your organs and you needed to, I say, do a, a, a liver lumpectomy, and you have to dig for a bunch of guts to get there, then actually that's far more serious and more damaging. So I think there are forms of sampling you can do, and there are forms of alleviating pressure, which I've done before. Full-on surgery, I'm a bit more hesitant. But medical treatment, it's more than doable. I've done wing repairs in butterflies, which is a form of orthopedic surgery, I suppose. It's a different kettle of fish, as it were. It, it requires a different appreciation of what's going on. Okay, so we, we won't do an exploratory laparotomy on your, <laughs> on your snail, but is it possible, are there reasons to, and can you anaesthetise them? Yeah. Yeah, they're very, very, in fact, if anything, they're probably, I would be far more comfortable anaesthetising a spider than I would a cat or a dog. Even, even with the difference in familiarity, they are quite different. I think if you've got a sick spider, yes, you can kill it with anaesthesia. It's, it's doable. I think it's very hard. I think it's very hard to, to overdo it. Uh, and 
the tolerances are, are higher because of how they are different. So a cat or dog breathes actively. And, and you know, spiders, as one instance, as one species set, do have a more active circulatory system. They do pump their blood around their bodies, different from many insects, I should say. But really, you're exposing that spider to a level of gas, and they're mostly absorbing that gas via diffusion. So things are a little bit slower. But actually, because it's via diffusion, it's diffused out as well. And spiders are more used to being in an anoxic, as in no oxygen situation. So, you know, they're far more tolerant. As a rule, not 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 all invertebrates are, but actually the majority of spiders are very tolerant to anesthesia. They tolerate it well, in truth, and survive nicely. So I've only actually ever lost one spider, and I've done quite a few hundred anesthesias at this point. You mentioned earlier about dehydrated tarantulas, I think it was. Is it possible, I mean, again, as a small animal clinician or even a, a, a large animal clinician, dehydrated equals intravenous fluids. Can you give fluids to invertebrates and and you know any other medications you know you were talking about your pseudomonases and the, and the other bacteria and that around how, how do you give medication to invertebrates the same way <laughs> i say it so invertebrates often have different vasculature uh, spiders have a more closed vascular system so you can give them injections intravenously it's probably more intra something close to intravenous but not fully intravenous i've given injections into hearts in the same way that you would perhaps a snake in tarantulas and that works very well i've given it underneath exoskeleton plates essentially within the skin i've given it intrasolomic but i'm always hesitant to do that because for the same reason that we discussed earlier they've got more discrete more careful systems within them so you have to confirm you're in heart really before injecting but again, they can take it orally. I've got this beautiful video of a, a little deserter spider essentially taking syringe feed fluids and really enjoying it and grabbing onto it and wanting more of it. You know, I, I, I often get owners to give oral fluids. And, you know, most of the time, they're more than capable, even the scary tarantulas. Tarantulas are great, really, because they, they go into fret pose. You just need a syringe attached to a little long catheter and you just put it into its mouth past pieces and give it some fluids. And it looks a bit annoyed at you, but it will take it quite nicely, in fact. Do invertebrates feel pain? Are, are they sentient creatures? Oh, question for the philosophers, uh, Brian. Question for the, for the, for the philosophers. Um, we go back to that anthropomorphizing question, don't we? It is a great word. I also like onomatopoeia. It's one of my other favourite words. Um, I think... I would say they do, but I would say that's based more on personal than scientific. I think the metrics of how we feel pain or how humans feel pain is metrics for how humans feel pain. You know, I had the same conversation with reptile owners, and I think you probably have the same, or I did have the same conversation with cat or dog owners. I think to what extent an animal feels pain depends on how, what that animal is and how that animal interacts with the world. And it's to what extent you define pain as being what it is. You know, you could define pain as, you know, is it orthopedic, traumatic pain? Have you broken your leg? But you and I both know that there's more to pain than that. You know, that a dog or cat 
may you know, may have a massive mass that's taking up you know half of its abdomen it's not in orthopedic pain but is it is it in pain or is it uncomfortable is it experiencing suffering probably so i think you know invertebrates are different i think but they're the same i think i can certainly tell you that based on a hargreaves test which is a heated plate that tarantulas have similar responses to noxious stimuli compared to mice which in my head gives me evidence that they have something that spider in terms of pain but they they don't always respond you know spiders lose their legs they autotomize their legs is that as painful a process as losing a leg in a vertebrae spiders can can experience welfare issues i would say because if you keep a spider badly it will have a lower body condition it will eventually become dehydrated it will eventually lose its capacity to navigate its environment you know are those is that pain in the same way that we experience pain but is it is it pain for a tarantula i think i think the important thing is to ask the question i think often when you read the studies which i have done uh, the response is you know we don't really know argument by analogy which i think is a good argument argument by analogy is a good argument because if it would be painful in a dog it's probably painful in an insect it's probably a good analogy even though it it, it presents lots of problems for anyone that thinks it through. It's a very difficult question to answer. And that's probably my best best answer. I, I, I definitely give them pain relief. Should we put it that way? Ah, uh, that that because that was going to be my ne- my next question is whether you are a believer or not, do you give pain relief? So you're you're still looking at the same kind of pain relief that we are looking at as conventional veterinarians? No. <laughs> but to make a cut very the reason is the first thing you'd probably grab is a non-steroidal uh, because every vet grabs that because it works in many species. And I must confess, I've done the studies uh, and COX-1, COX-2 inhibitors don't appear to do anything, good or bad. So you can give too much of it and it won't do anything. It doesn't change the response to the Hargreaves test in spiders or locus personal communications, Benjamin, because uh, it still needs to be fully published, that study. So it doesn't change anything. So when I tend to use pain relief, I tend to use opioids because they do have analogous situations or analogous receptors, mu, mu receptors to vertebrates. The thing I should say very quickly where we, whenever we're discussing treatment is – Whenever you're thinking of using any drug, I, I don't actually care what species it is. It's the same for cats, dogs, birds, reptiles, amphibians, and humans, frankly. You must know what the drug does. You must know what it works on, and you must know what you want to achieve. And in effect, I've just told you how to figure out how to use drugs in anything, because you must know what the drug does. You must know that the pathway it's using exists or is equivalent to, or interacts in a similar way, or you can be convinced it can do in whatever species. And you must know that what that drug's going to do is going to do the same thing in that species. And that's the problem with trying to use any med- medicine on an invertebrate. Lot, lots of people have used Metacam on all sorts of invertebrates, and it doesn't do anything. But we still use it because we, we know what it does, but we don't know if, it, if it's got the equivalent pathway in invertebrates. And if you do a, a genome search, you'll find out it doesn't. And again, this is sort of an adage of my life where I have tried to figure out things and have discovered a year later 
that invertebrates don't have that thing. So they don't have albumin, for instance. That got quite embarrassing when I did a study, essentially looking at reference intervals in albumin in an invertebrate. That was quite humbling. It was definitely binding to something, but it certainly wasn't binding to albumin because they don't have it. So again, adage for life, slight distraction, but adage for life. So, okay, Benjamin, we've we've done the um, the diagnosis on our on our little creature, and we have decided that whatever it's got, we can't fix it, and the treatment for it is euthanasia. Now, being a fisherman, and one of the creatures that we catch around here are crayfish or lobsters. I know that you can put them in the freezer, and you you bring them out two days later, and they come back to life again. Um, yeah. Taking it that these animals are sentient, how are we best to go about euthanasia? How, how do we put them down humanely? So I think, I mean, I like that you've just discussed freezing animals because I think there are some arguments that that can be inhumane in invertebrates because remember that they've got this lattice of, of tissue holding themselves together and that they've, they're actually little fluid sacs. So if you freeze that, you make water crystals and it can be a very slow way to go. Of course, it's a very appropriate way to go if you're eating that invertebrate and it's being done quickly or, or they're being stunned first. For me, I tend to have three options. Again, very equivalent in truth to cats and dogs. If I've got a large tarantula or insect, I will tend to recommend pent-up obituates in the same way you would to cat or dog, preferably with some anaesthesia. So especially if the animal's moving around enough, it, it, it essentially you're sedating them for the procedure. And then it's just an overdose given directly into the heart or into the central ganglion. So in both insects and spiders, they have a large ganglion going down their belly side, ventral side, and if you grab a textbook, it'll tell you where that ganglion is. And an injection into that ganglion is, is very effective at, at euthanizing them. I then will confirm that they're gone with a Doppler. Another method I've sometimes used is an anesthesia in a uh, high percentage alcohol or formalin or a, something called Carl's, which is a all fixatives. The anesthesia, so anesthesia, they don't recover instantly. In most invertebrates, uh, depending on the form of gaseous anesthesia you're using, so actually they're sedated as they're being fixed, or they're essentially anesthetized. So that that is equivalently in my in my head ethical to do. So that's another method as well. So it's certainly I I, I do things with respect to that these are people's pets. And these people care a lot about their pets. And if they've come to that decision, it's important to give them that that little bit of dignity that they might want. Can we just finish up here now, Benjamin? A, a couple of points. The first one is for owners of invertebrate pets. Now, just bear in mind that the audience that we've got here is international. But if, if you have got a, a pet something or other, how do you find a veterinarian who can look at it for you i think it is very very challenging it is incredibly challenging i think the veterinary invertebrate society is a good first port of call and this is in the united kingdom the society primarily in the united kingdom we are happy to be an international society but it's mostly uk vets i think in truth you've got a few options one option is to bring it to a vet like me which is, I know, ridiculous if you're in New Zealand, but I certainly have had advice calls from as far, in truth, which is quite sad. I've had Kentucky, I've had Europe, I've had South America, but I'm I'm not 
that's not a very that's not an option for most people. I think in truth, find an exotic vet that's willing to think laterally and then get them to contact the Veterinary Invertebrate Society or me or an invertebrate vet. Because, you know, I, I know what I do is is quite unusual. So I think there are vets that will see invertebrates. I think there are certainly vets that will see exotics. I think you have to find the right vet that's willing to try their best. Because, you know, an option is better than no option. I think if you find the right vet that's willing to do their best and they get the advice and they, they think it through and it will probably be more work, work, work for them than it's worth, it's at that point I think you can find a veterinarian that can help you in terms of treatment. So a lot of what I do, you know, I, I view my job really as proof of concept. I'm opening doors. That's my job. You know, I'm never going to make any money from invertebrates. It's, but, but what I am going to do is I'm going to allow a few other vets to do what I, what I can do. So, you know, that situation in Kentucky, what actually ended up happening was that person went to a vet that was willing to do something. By gosh golly, that vet, he was, he and she were open-minded enough that we had a long conversation over the phone I talked them through everything they needed to do and they did it. You know, I think more often what I'm doing is, is helping other vets see these animals because I think if you are that owner and you're in that situation and you've had a tarantula for 25 years and you want to want care for it, I mean, it's a desperate situation. So just to completely finish things off here, Benjamin, if a veterinarian as the primary port of call for a client has their tarantula or their giant land snail or something come up and they have got problems and they want to get in contact with someone who knows more than them, as in you, how do they get in contact with you or somebody who's got an interest? The Veterinary Investment Society has a Facebook page, which is regularly looked at. It also has an email address. So sources of information. One source of information, I would say, is Investment Medicine by Gregory Lubart. New uh, editions coming out next year, of which I contributed to. So that's one option. Uh, grab that textbook. It'll usually put you in the right direction. I think the Veterinary Invertebrate Society via Facebook or email is also another good option. We're always happy to be contacted by people who want advice. A vet with an interest directly, so me directly, either via my website or ResearchGate or whatever, is another option. I think your local diplomat, your local diploma holder in zoological medicine is also another option. If you have a someone who does zoo work, every zoo will have a bug house. Not every zoo vet does much with that bug bug house uh, some do some don't some bug housekeepers do more some don't i think you have as many different situations there but actually that's a good first point port of call because they will know a lot of the zoo vets in, in uk do do stuff with invertebrates you know i've been talking to them about it for the better part of 10 years this is something i'm really passionate about and unfortunately for for all the poor zoo vets in my country, I've had I've spoken to them about invertebrates for so long, they're probably slightly sick of it by now. But actually, that's a good local option. If you're in New Zealand or in Australia, and I certainly know that the vets in Victoria, uh, in Australia, do do invertebrates because they've got the wonderful Lord House Sick Insect. So they've had to do invertebrates. If 
that's a good place to start. So I mean, off, off, you, you have your owner contact you. I think the first thing is make sure that your receptionists take them seriously and treat them with respect. And don't just say, oh, my God, it's a spider, you know, uh, stamp on it. Um, you, you get that person. If you get that, that information, someone wants to you to see a spider, tell them, give me 12 hours, give me 24 hours, let me talk to a few people. I'll see your spider because obviously if you're worried about your spider, we'll see it. And actually that's a very compassionate thing to do. That's a very caring thing to do. Sometimes they won't turn up, but actually that expression of care is a very important part of what vets do. If someone's got an animal they're worried about, you should see it within reason. And that's, I think, the way that our profession should be being seen and hopefully is with any animal. Benjamin, thank you very, very much for your time. Um, if the listeners are interested in this sort of thing, have a listen to the podcast that I recorded with one two or three months ago on bees going along a similar but slightly different path. But Benjamin, thank you very, very much. Fantastic. If this conversation with Benjamin has whetted your appetite on invertebrate medicine, probably the best place to start to find out more would be the Veterinary Invertebrate Society's Facebook page. I'll put a link for this on our website, so probably the easiest way to find our website is through our bio link. And that's it for another episode of the Vet Podcast. All of our links are in one place at beacons.ai slash vetpodcast. That is B-E-A-C-O-N-S dot A-I slash vetpodcast. And while you're there, don't forget to buy us a coffee. On behalf of me, Brian Greger, and everybody else involved in the making of this podcast, thanks for listening and we'll catch you again soon. Music